My name is Kim Weeks, and this is the Weeks Well. Dr. Shyam Ranganathan holds an MA in South Asian Studies and an MA and PhD in Philosophy. He's also a strong voice on social media with his handle, Yoga Philosophy, which I really recommend you consider following as I was telling him in the conversation. His handle is one of the few that actually does make me scroll stop. And so I wanted to have him on the podcast to talk about his research focus across disciplines, which is to understand how non-Western traditions, such as yoga, are marginalized in a Western world, and how BIPOC traditions of philosophy can help understand this process of colonialism and provide alternatives to inform our way forward and away from colonialism. So Dr. Ranganathan and I got super deep into this conversation, tracing his academic work in translating the Yoga Sutra as a PhD student that was for his dissertation. I was fascinated in how he described his work there, his approach, and what he concluded in the translation of the Yoga Sutra, in particular with the word vritti. So there's a whole lot more he's written since then. I'll have all that information in the show notes. I really recommend you deep dive into some of his work, certainly spend time on his website, and learn how he approaches this practice of yoga, which he pretty much synonymizes with the word bhakti. He thinks of yoga and bhakti as very similar because they are both about devotional practices. And devotional practices, as he describes, of individual and personal autonomy. So since so many of us throw these words around, how we practice yoga, what we do it for, you know, as people who do not speak, uh, most of us anyway, Sanskrit uh, and haven't studied it the way he has, I think there's, you have so much, we all have so much to learn from someone, an academic like this, who has a really fresh, very interesting perspective, not just on pre-colonial yoga and what we need to know about it, but also how we can reclaim threads of that even into our modern understanding of what we're doing and how we're practicing. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I absolutely loved it. Dr. Shyam Ranganathan on The Week's Well. Dr. Ranganathan, thank you so much for joining me on The Week's Well. Thanks for having it's nice to see you after a year when I interviewed yeah, you right. Yeah, for IAYT when you were their keynote speaker uh, at the SITAR conference, with I, which I just came back from a couple of days ago. Not the one that you spoke at, of course, but the one that happened this year. So right. I have a kind of a big question I want to start with, which is, well, let me back up even a step further and say that some of the questions as I prepared them, I was aware of them feeling to me like way too general. Like everybody assumes that they know the answers to these questions, but it seems to me that a conversation like this one should necessarily tackle perspectives and ideologies even that people have that they don't think they have to question. So my first question is, Help define to me, tell me what for you, your experience of, or what is the westernized world and how the traditions of Indian moral philosophy in the context of Western academia have been neglected. Great. Thank you. So um, the results of my research, uh, I've uh, I make a distinction between the, geogra- the geography of the West, which is huge. It includes Africa and North and South America. Lots of BIPOC folks here indigenously. And we use the West kind of this colonial way to talk about Europe and its descent. So I talk about a capital W that's italicized that leans on the East. It's a very specific, it says, says West, but if you see it written, it's it's different. Um, and it's a tradition that goes back to the ancient Greeks. 
And that's the tradition that ends up blowing up and being a global colonizing tradition. So at first, at the first iteration, well, the Greeks, I mean, they just, they hatched it. It starts there. And they had this one way of thinking about uh, one word for thought, reason, speech, logos. And what this meant was that the thinkable is the same as what you would express in your culture through your language. And this is the seed of the West colonialism because it can, it, with this model, it only makes thing, sense of things in terms of its own language and history and culture. So then it gets passed along to the Romans who then there's kind of the second iterate and that's kind of the first kind of major uh, capital W leading on the East. Well, there was Alexander the Great, he, he gave it a shot, but the Romans kind of took it up a notch and then they invent the idea of religio, religion, as a way to talk about traditions that are sub tolerated but subjected. And then the Western world is basically the continuation of this, uh, this tradition. And as it spreads, it does, it treats itself as the frame for understanding every other cultural tradition that it then defines if it tolerates it as religion. When, um, you know, and the thing is, the data is all there. Like, if you go look at early Christianity, at Jesus was a victim of Western colonialism, right? And if you look at the Torah, filled with colonial trauma and violence and ru running from oppression. So it's already there. Um, but people, they don't, they just, they don't think about the history of why did the, why did we ever come to think of this as religion? And then they just look at the product of these events and then. They try, and then of course Christianity was actually developed by the Europeans, basically. Like it wasn't until Constantine decided that it would be allowed that you got Christianity, and then weird things like instead of talking about like the colonial violence, it becomes about a relation atonement between God and His people. So the subject gets changed, mm. and so we don't we don't go back and look at the colonial violence. We then just change the topic to God, and then as this tradition spreads, it renames. Um, like, so when the British show up in South Asia, they use the Persian word Hindu for everything South Asia, everything indigenously South Asian. And at that time, all these South Asian religious identities are created. And, you know, I'm always surprised that I'm like, like, this is not neat. Like, this, I'm not making, this is stuff people know. This is all just kind of stuff out there. But people then, they do the weird thing of, like, using the products of colonialism as a way to understand history. So, mm. you know... It's as silly as using race, which was also invented later on in the Western tradition to understand people historically mm -hmm. or even ourselves without thinking critically of like the politics of why anyone came to use these categories. But what people do then is they use these categories that were created by Western colonialism to subjugate BIPOC traditions as a way of understanding the colonized traditions. And so what so, so not only is the westernized world this very specific tradition that then blows up and marginalizes everything, it changes the subject from what was there before colonialism to, to the products of colonialism that people then read backwards um, into history. Um, and there's a reason it does this. It's, this is the other part of the, the tradition, is that it, because it explains everything in terms of what it believes, engages in what's called interpretation, explanation in terms of belief. And this is not compatible with logic or reasoning, but if we believe there are religions or if we believe that there are races, et cetera, then we use these beliefs in our explanation. And so history disappears. And all we understand is how the world looks to us after colonization. Mm -hmm. um, so Western colonialism is huge. Now, what does this do to the study of South Asian Morocco? Well, it, it disappears it. It literally disappears it because once Western colonialism, there are two things happen, that the West becomes the frame for everything, but it also engages in interpretation, which is exactly what bad students of philosophy do. Like they try and read Plato or Aristotle and they try and make sense of it in terms of how they see the world. And of course, they're not going to get, they won't understand, they'll get frustrated. So when I started my work as a grad student, I was looking at what everybody was doing. And like, I mean, everybody, and they, they just didn't, they use their perspective 
in a westernized world as a frame to try to understand South Asia. And so they were never able to just understand arguments and reasons and theories they didn't agree. They just, they were starting off on the wrong step. And um, one of the kind of fruits of this is the word dharma, which was used by everybody in the South Asian tradition to talk about the right or the good, which is what ethics is about. Uh, Westernized scholars would use their own beliefs and then correlate it with each use of the word dharma. And they came to this kooky view that like it's got a million meanings. But that's because they were making themselves the issue. They weren't trying to just track like, why is it that Buddhists have a view of dharma and then other people have a different? So if if you adopt a philosophical, logical approach, you see they were just disagreeing about this one concept, which they used the word dharma for. So it's not that it has a million meanings. It's just it was used differently by people who disagreed. So I guess that's the thing that colonization deprives us of. It, It deprives us of this appreciation of, possibilities and we don't all have to agree and uh, so yeah so I was kind of basically one of the first people to really uh, kind of diagnose this problem and then and then show there's just a ton of moral flaw and finally yoga slash bhakti is a, is a basic ethical theory that's one of the things that um, my research shows if you actually are interested in. Yeah. And I, I want to get to that because I do think that listeners of this podcast will be interested in being directed by this conversation to the top couple of things that they should read, which I'd like to get to. I think it should be the sutras. It seems like the most obvious, you know, one, but I, I tend to try to do like thought experiments sometimes on this Podcasts, and so before we get to recommendations for like what listeners would do next after they finish this call, (laughs) listening thought experiment is what do you wish had happened, or in your mind's eye, what could better have happened than this colonialist approach of a philosophy? And I'm just sort of I'm just thinking out loud here, not really accessible to them at the start because it wasn't in English and they were sort of like thinking. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so I'm just wondering like what, if the interface is English and other languages, not Sanskrit, I'm just thinking like, like how, because, you know, I was thinking of this question as you were sort of concluding. Yeah. And then you said I was the first to diagnose the problem. And I think that's where the solution begins once you name it and diagnose it. So yeah. I do want to know how we can go forward, but I think yogaphilosophy.com right. really shows that. And I think all your work does. But Thank you. how could we have avoided or how could we have better arrived at this place in your mind? Okay, so there's a history. So there, I, I hear two questions. Yeah. There's like, yeah. if we were to redo history, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, what would have been the better way? And then, given that we're here, how do we yeah. how do we move forward? Yeah. Right. So one of the things I point out in my work, uh, and I have some free, I have a free paper I just uh, I just published on this called Hinduism Belief in the Colonial Invention of Religion, is that if you can adopt a logic based approach to understanding, you can you can understand how the world was before it was westernized in South Asia. So the neat thing about South Asia is that Western colonialism comes kind of late. Mm -hmm. So the earliest Western colonialism starts with the Delhi of the the Sultanate of Delhi, the early uh, Muslim colonizers. And I count that as the start of the Western tradition because that's the first time you have rulers that come with the idea of religion. Mm. So no one, no one would have known what you were talking about if you talk about religion. Mm. But they had this idea. And where do we get the idea of religion from? We get it from the Romans. So that was that's kind of the start. But if we look prior to that, what we find is a tradition where people they were fine with getting along by disagreeing. Like nobody had to share a view. And everybody was free to have their own view on dharma and to disagree. And so part of the challenge of being a responsible individual was learning how to navigate a world of diversity. And so um, there's a kind of before and after. You can see the effects of once Western colonialism comes, things start to shift in South Asia. Now people have lost a connection to their 
indigenous roots. And so you have like the fermenting of like the solidification of xenophobia, uh, the Hindu right. And so all of these things are really, just, they're not indigenous. They're all mm. kind of continuation of colonialism. But you could see that they had a completely different way of getting along with each other. And I think it's like even celebrated in things like the churning of the milk ocean. There's a very famous old story where, you know, the gods, they're worried about reputational risks. So they go to Vishnu and he says, oh, well, you have to you have to turn the ocean with your demon cousins you don't get along with. And they have to engage in this back and forth, pushing and pulling of dealing with each other's perspective and not giving in. And um, in the end, the demons don't want to share the nectar, uh, it, but the gods are willing to uh, to 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 share it. And they they're the only ones who get it. But that's a story that celebrates the idea that what is it to be? an elevated person, it's to be able to live with people you disagree with forever, like mm-hmm. to just be able to get along mm-hmm. and not really care about external approval and the need for everybody to reflect your view back to you, right? The demons, they want that and the gods are okay without without that. So anyways, there are these neat little kind of nuggets in the tradition that talk about what that world would have been like. It's very different from... The world we come from the West where, I mean, in the beginning, you know, Plato, this was a thought experiment, but people took it really seriously. Society has to be organized on a top-down basis with doctrine as something that's dispensed from the top. And the, 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 the premise of society is that we all share a view about what we're supposed to be doing. So there's no diversity. We all have to be part of the same project. We have to buy the same values. And the information comes from the top, right? Ancient society, so it's radically secular. Everybody can disagree. There's no shared view. And you have to learn how to do philosophy. So philosophy becomes kind of the basis of like how you interact with people. Um, So what would have been better? Like it would have been better if there was never a Western colonialism. If we just always just did that, learn um, philosophy. How do we move forward? We have to reclaim these indigenous skills that have been lost by colonialism and that's not impossible but it's not like um you know unless you make it the point of your work and study you're not going to learn it so one of the ways this gets perpetuated um in the academy is that uh philosophy study like professional philosophers do white people stuff and then people who lack professional training in philosophy, they lack PhDs in philosophy, they might have PhDs in languages or a higher educator. They're the Salvationists. So it ends up being kind of institutionalized as a form of apartheid. Hmm. So the people, if you want to learn about like pre-colonial South Asia, what that was like, you you won't be, I mean, really, I'm like, there are so few philosophers who actually study South Asia and even amongst that, there's so few who are really interested in this kind of decolonial stuff. So it's not it's not impossible to learn. It's just if your idea of learning is I got to go find a teacher who will explain it all to me. It's, uh, you know, unless you're lucky to run into someone who's done the work like me, it's it, it just mm-hmm. it won't happen. Well, um, and it, it's interesting because here we are having this conversation. I'm not a, you know, Ph.D you know, candidate, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to this conversation I had in undergrad. I was an English literature major and had done some work in logic in middle school, actually. I'd done some, you know, like, wow. yeah, I know. It was some, That's cool. it was so <laughs> cool. And it was this like yeah. geeky summer camp. And I took this college right. course in logic. Yeah. Which confounded me because I don't, really know exactly what I think. I just want to learn. I just, I, I'm, I just, mm. I just want to, I want to know, I want right. to learn. But I remember sitting, you know, in, in, you know, fast forward to college, having this debate about free will. And mm. I myself started feeling really agitated because I could not figure out what I thought. And there was a, a lot of very like opinionated people in the conversation. Oh, yeah. And they were like, well, it's this way. <laughs> it has to be this way. Blah, blah, blah. And, and, and it kind of, and I kind of thought to myself, I, I don't know. I mean, and, and maybe I was, you know, sort of setting up my path for yoga at that time of just being a contemplative practice because I just, I'm not sure I know. And so, right. and so, Good. and so I say that because this conversation, this podcast, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to bring in as many 
professional, contemplative yoga people, educated Mm -hmm. in a variety of ways and places. I have had some other academics on, but still we're not having this conversation within the context of the canon or academia. You have an audience of thousands of people like me, yoga teachers, just people who aren't going to go to college or MA or PhD program. So can you talk about what you think your role is or how you are influencing change in how yoga is taught wherever? Yeah. So as a yoga, so I consider myself a practitioner of yoga according to potentially. So I don't do things for goals. (laughs) Good things will happen if you practice, but I do it as part of my devotion to sovereignty, and then I practice the traits of of Avisha Tapas and Swadhyaya. And so I think, so I think any good teacher is just sharing their practice with other people. So you're not trying to indoctrinate people. You're not, and you know, I can't, I can't control what people take away, but I can set up an environment where it's safe for them to do the kind of work they need to do to learn. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the way I look at my job as a professor, teaching philosophy classes, same. So I don't, I don't really see that that differently in yoga land but i think what's what's just you know i was reluctant to become a teacher like to do this but i didn't think anybody would be interested because in yoga land people love the shtick they love the story of the of the they they love this kind of adventure story of someone goes over and learns some new cultural experience and they'll come back and wear evening clothes and and talk about their life at an ashram or or they love the idea of someone who's just learned Sanskrit and all. And like, I just like, it drives me nuts. So knowledge is not cultural performance, right? And what you find in yoga land is this idea that if I can perform being South Asian, maybe by showing them that I understand and can read Sanskrit or I wear a Kritha pajama or talk about my time, then people will take me seriously. So that model of knowledge is actually from Aristotle. <laughs> it's not South Asian at all. It's actually Aristotle. And the whole... I need a, an enlightened guru at the top to feed me all my stuff. That's Plato. It's also not South Asian. Um, so I was just like, this is a weird. So the funny thing about people who claim to be interested in things that are South Asian, both in the Academy of Yoga is they're extremely Western. <laughs> so, so I was like, I, I didn't know what to expect, but I was just like, I'm just going to do my thing, which is I'm going to teach people what it is to reason. It's going to very basic baby logic stuff. And then explain that to understand yoga is to understand that it's an option among many options. And once you start to appreciate that there are options, then you're starting to practice yoga because yoga is all about options. So that you said so that's the way the yoga sutra begins, is that when you know when you can control, when you can be responsible for what you contemplate then you allow yourself the freedom to be autonomous, Mm. right? So you're Mm. giving yourself the opportunity to consider the options. And when you don't do that, you just buy what you experience and then you're stuck there. So, you know, once again, I mean, I'm not, I just consider myself, I'm sharing kind of my practice of philosophy, which is basically my practice of yoga. Basically, no different. And what that does is it creates an environment where others can start to do that kind of work too. And so I usually see a couple things happen. The first is people realize that they were just, what they thought was yoga was a mishmash. (laughs) I'm like, yoga is a very specific option. Second of all, it's an option that gives you your autonomy back to you. It's not an option of looking to other people to make your decisions or to tell you what to do. It's really the ground up practice of your devotion to what it is to be a person. And then as you take that on, that's what each Isha, the ideal of what it is to be a person. And then when you take that on, you transform how you relate to yourself and other people in positive ways. And one positive way is that you start to get healthy boundaries. You're not living other people's lives. You're just living yours. And then you allow others to, to live their lives. And then they can start to do the same work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then I think just the other thing that people, my students who stick around with me for a while start to notice is that all the things that they thought were yoga or that they thought was just ordinary is actually just all from the Western canon. So samskara is a real thing. A samskara is this kind of interpretive pattern, subconscious usually. We, we bring these routines to circumstances, they get triggered and they kind of organize a response. Um, another meaning of samskara is it's a rite or a ritual. So you can do it, you can, you know, sometimes doing the puja is called samskara. Mm. But anyways, when we're not practicing yoga, we just buy our experiences. And in a world of Western colonialism, we buy Western colonialism. So then all these ancient ideas from the Western tradition animate us unless we do this kind of philosophical work. And there's no substitute. You have to actually understand that like Aristotle was the first to say that and Plato was the first to say that. And then you start to see that what you thought with yoga was never yet. Like that wasn't yoga, mm. right? The idea you need to go to an ashram or yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, find a guru. Let's, let's flesh that out. Tell me some of the yeah. things that your students do wind up articulating that they learn or that you know they learn that they thought yoga was that yoga is not. Yeah. Well, usually one of the first uh, reactions is people were like, I thought yoga and Buddhism were the same thing. And then, so Buddhism is a version of consequentialism. The consequentialism claims that, so now we're getting into ethical. So I guess the first thing that I teach people is that there are four basic ethical theories. And every ethical theory is a, is a view about the relationship between the right choice and the good outcome or right, right procedure and good outcome. Virtue ethics claims you have to be a good person and then you know what to do. And so theism is a version of um, virtue ethics where God is the ultimately good person and what God wants is what we should do. And there's consequentialism that says that there are certain good ends and those justify certain procedures. So Buddhists think that the reduction of dukkha or suffering is the ultimate good end. And so then practice for them is justified insofar as it facilitates that end. Then there's deontology, which says there are lots of good things to do, but you only have reason to do some of them. So karma yoga and the Bhagavad Gita is a version of deontology. Lots of things to do but some things you have special reason to do that have to do with your sociological context. That's a, that's a Gita version of deontologies. There are others. Then yoga slash bhakti claims that you start off with the right. It's the opposite of virtue ethics. So you start off with being devoted to the ideal of the right. And then that's your practice. And it's within that devotion to the right that you work on being right. And then in time, as you get good at that, you bring about the good. Mm. So the good ends up being an outcome of your practice of devotion to the right. And each for specifically, this ideal of the right has two essential traits. It has a healthy relationship to its past, not stuck the past. So we practice tapas, which is this self-challenge to help us free us from our mm -hmm. unhealthy relationships. And then swadhyaya, which is self-determination or transparency of the values you set yourself and it's a healthy relationship to your future. So if you can be free from your past and determine your own future, then you're autonomous. That's Kaivalya. You end up there. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, one of the, I, I teach this kind of, this is like very early on, I make this clear. And so people are like, oh, I thought Buddhism was, you know, mm -hmm. and I still meet lots of people who think that the reason, like the only reason to do yoga is to reduce the suffering. And that's, that's consequentialism, not, um, not yoga. And then I think just, understanding that yoga is this very specific practice where there are no rules, no one else to tell you what to do. You have decided to be devoted to this ideal of sovereignty. So you take the responsibility onto yourself, right? And then your practice is just that devotion. And I usually you know, communicate an analogy, like if you want to learn music, you have to identify the ideal of music and then you form a practice of that devo devotion to that ideal. And at first you're bad at it, but in time you keep up with the practice, you start to perform the ideal you're devoted to. And the people who are really good never think they made it. There's always the devotional practice gives meaning to all of their activity because it's what propels them forward. And so the same as in Yoga Yishra is the ideal of what it is to be a person. It's what we have in common as people. We all have an interest in that mm -hmm. ideal of sovereignty or independence. 
And then when we engage in this devotional practice, we take on the responsibility of being independent ourselves, but it's what we all have in common. We all, we all have an interest in that. So even though we're working on ourselves, it opens our, we get, we are open to other people as things who we're all kind of in the same boat. We have very similar challenges. And if we want to personally succeed, we need an environment that's safe for people to succeed. And so this devotional practice helps us focus on ourselves and get over our ego all at the same time, mm-hmm. right? Our selfishness. Yeah, it would um, it would strike me that if you're if your practice is of an emerging understanding of autonomy in yourself, you can't really know you're autonomous without testing out that experience of autonomy in relationship with others? How would you know you're autonomous? It's a social concept. There's no sense of autonomy in the middle of like space. (laughs) Right. But with other people, there is. And so there it's, you can't really, um, and that's why if you look at the yoga sutra, what gets us to Kaivalya is the Dharma Mega Samadhi. We have to get rid of the selfishness in every context that, you know, that, that makes us uh, to be, everything right we're not mm-hmm. and and that makes it possible for us to be independent mm-hmm. right we get rid of our ego and then we can be independent and so i think with just practically what this does for a lot of people is that it helps straighten out all sorts of interpersonal relationships that people um family partners children colleagues right because you know in the west especially with virtue ethics we're taught to devalue ourselves. Don't think of yours because if you think you're good, then somehow everything you want is right. You can't do that because you probably don't know what's right. So we're taught to devalue ourselves and then also to sacrifice ourselves. There's all sorts of weird things to be a martyr, to be, um, you know, to, 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 to do things for the greater good. Or, and yoga gets rid of all of that. <laughs> Being a martyr is bad for your health. Don't be a martyr. <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't need to sacrifice. You just have to worry. Just worry about yourself responsibly, right? And then all of a sudden, um, right? You you cut the you cut cut out the yeah. abusive or unhealthy relationships, and then you can also write. And often it's just it's people you're close to, but in the wrong way. Right. And so that if you can kind of straighten out that relationship, it goes from being a problem to being fun. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Being healthy. Yeah. Fun and healthy and nurturing, you know? So I want to pin a couple things you've been saying, because it's just fascinating to me. You talked about four systems of philosophy, right? Of basic ethical theories. Sorry. Sorry. Basic ethical theories of which yoga bhakti is one. Okay. One of them. So, okay. And so then I want to, and then say that you you talked about yoga. Well, before I ask my question, actually let me understand or sort of delve a little deeper in how, have you synonymized yoga and bhakti? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. They're the same. They're this historically, because when you look at the, when you look at the, the key idea in yoga is Ishra Pranidhana is devotion to Ishra. And then if you look at bhakti, it's it's usually some some story about devotion to Ishra. So mm-hmm. what I've done is it's, and these are different words. So in fact, in the Bhagavad Gita, what Krishna talks about as bhakti yoga is basically the yoga of the Yoga Sutra. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's driven by devotion to this ideal. I see. And so that's why I just use yoga bhakti. It's there are two different okay. words. So bhakti kind of like like funnels up into yoga because both are this devotion to an ideal. There are two different words for the same, for the same theory that oh. now people use bhakti in all sorts of funny ways, yeah. like in yoga land, it's a sing along with the, with a harmonium. <laughs> no, <laughs> totally. That's like, you know, yeah. or dance, like, you know, sing alongs are great, but like, it's, it's just, I mean, this, like, that's like a camp experience. Bhakti is like more intense than that, right? It's, and you, it's because it's, you know. It's so, so true. Yeah. It's so true. And that's actually what that leads exactly into my next question, which is, if in the West, virtue ethics is the dominant ethical system. Yeah. Right? I, 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 for the third time, I've forgot. Well, I think it certainly was, it, it, it's a hu- huge part of Christianity. Right, right. 
Um, and um, do you, is it part of Judaism? A very dominant force in the Western in Western world. Yeah, dominant force in the Western world. And is yeah. it? Would you? Can you help me just quickly understand? Is Judaism also considered a virtue ethic? I, you know what? I increasingly started not come because there, there's a lot about Judaism I don't. Like I look, there's a story of a Judeo-Christian morality. When I was in university, people just smushed all of this together. But I, I started talking to rabbis and people who knew better. But I realized that there's probably a story about Judaism that Christians like, and then there's like an account of Judaism that Jews and Jewish scholars know about. And so, I, in any ways, I don't think it's a minor colonized, oppressed tradition. So if we want to look for what's wrong with the West, we can't blame those people. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's you true. Know, I just think. You have to look at the people who are in charge. Right, exactly. Right? Okay, and that's well, and that's yeah. sort of where I was going because I was yeah, thinking yeah, yeah. about the colonizing of yoga as a practice and how it exists in modernity, which is one of the main, you know, thrusts of this podcast. And I, I'm hesitate giving this example because you're probably and stop me honestly because it might be redundant and not helpful, but I. Um, you know, I owned a yoga studio for a long time in the early aughts and co-taught with um, a South Asian guy who just loved him. He loved, we, we had, it was a, it was a wonderful relationship. He was an amazing teacher and we decided to co-lead a retreat to India. We took a two week trip. We started out in Delhi and then we went all the way up to the North and it was great. However, <laughs> I had this experience and it and it and it accrued over the days we were there. Well, and I should back up and say that he organized it all. So it felt like we were getting access to an experience that as not all white people, there were quite a few people, BIPOC people on the trip, but, you know, maybe 60% yeah, white people. Yeah, connections make a difference. You have to know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah, yeah it, it just, it felt like we were doing something that felt like authentic and sincere. We wanted to learn and we, you know, we, we, we went to... Um, we went to a mandala ceremony up near Lay, and, and there were a lot of other things. I mean, it was a trip, right? And so we went very far to do it, yeah. but we did practice quite a bit of yoga. He and I both led a bunch of uh, classes for our group there. But the thing I'm talking about, the accruing experience that I had, and it was nauseating really because I felt so trapped by it and recognizing that what we did as Western people in India, which is like whip out our credit card. And we were buying the deities, we were buying the statues, we were buying the beads, we were buying the whatever. And of course that was at the time where the phones weren't blooping everywhere. So just it was just these pieces of plastic all over the place that we, you know, and you know, a straight capitalist would be like, well, you're welcome because that brought benefit to, you know, South Asia, right. to wherever you, to India, wherever you were. But it just felt to me like, how do we, how can we do this? Should we do this? Like, what's the yeah. meaning and the import of doing this? And it reminds me of this, um, uh, a, a, a bhakti yoga mentor of mine who has been doing this for, I don't know, 40 years. And he said, you know, the West just left all of the philosophy and the teachings of all the gods and goddesses, all of the depth practices of yoga behind as we imported it into the United States. And I don't know what you think about all these things I've just said, but I guess my question to set the field for the question is, if the dominant ethical philosophy is virtue ethics, and you're positioning yoga or describing yoga as the opposite of that, how have we developed yoga in modernity in the West using yeah. the virtue ethics lens right. against a practice that's the opposite of it? Yeah. So one of the things that I point out in kind of my, the historical work is that when you appreciate that Western colonialism begins around 1100 CE, 1200 CE in South Asia, you already have the Westernization of South Asia begin. And if you look at texts like the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, 
where yoga is described as something you do in hiding inside closed doors under the tutelage of a human group who who have the knowledge that's being passed down. Um, you know that, and the the reason you do that is because it, it gives you some kind of great uh, power or liberation afterwards. Uh, but you you already find these teleological like, little bits of virtue ethics and consequentialism there. Uh, you know, I pointed out in my writing that this is actually a trauma response. So you have a world that's falling apart outside. And so people are then wanting to flee to gentrified areas and then do things on hiding. And now what people call modern yoga is just that. It's not, it's not, it's actually a little older than say Krishnamacharya, it probably goes back to the 14th, but it's this weird thing you do in hiding with a human teacher that's supposed to give all sorts of powers that no one else can really see. And, and you know, and the other thing over you know, he said, don't talk about outside because the power disappears the moment you try and right. show. So it's like, it's not, but it's also clearly a trauma response. So when I think about the Westernized world, like the West, it's a colonial tradition. So this trauma is part of the tradition. It's it, it, And so when people go from the West, they gravitate to things in South Asia that resonate or, or, you know, they're pay and the pain, the pain point is good. Like when people go over to pay a teeth for education, they're going over with expectations. Yeah. And of course it's a big country and you will find what you want, right? That's so true. <laughs> it doesn't mean you learned anything, but that's the same problem for yoga in the West. It's like, it's, it's a business. It's, there's a conflict of interest. On the one hand, it's supposed to be education, on the other hand, the market doesn't know anything. And so in order for you to survive, you have to, you have to, well, the thought is the customer is always right, or at least mostly right. And so then you end up giving what people want. So, and what they want, they only, they only know what they want from this Western <laughs> world. So, I mean, I don't, the going to India bit, like, I don't think that, I think the problem is deeper. It's like, what, what, what do you think your practice is? Right. So this is why the philosophy is so important. If you're not doing that work, You'll be taken for a ride. You will find, and this is what, you know, the modern history of like yoga teachers and all the scandals are all about is people think they're going to learn something South Asian and then they get a creep or an abuser as a teacher. Instead, the question is, well, what, what is it that you thought yoga was? <laughs> like, did you think it was some mysterious knowledge some enlightened person has mm. and has to be close to you to pass along? Mm. Or is it the pre-colonial idea of what's the... And so the point I make is that if we want to talk about what actual yoga is, we can't look at colonization because that's a pre-colonial yoga is public practice out in the open. You fight the good fight. You stand up for yourself and for other people. And it's something you do in a world of diversity. And the, the if you look at the teachers um, in yoga, like in pre-colonial yoga bhakti traditions, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think about, so I, by chance is Sri Vaishnava, so is Krishnamacharya, but this is a this is a, a pre-colonial yoga bhakti tradition. The teachers were people who lived life on their own terms and were thereby an inspiration for us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the tradition starts off, this tradition starts out, the first human teacher was a little boy who was abandoned by his parents, Namarwar, because he was too weird. And he sat in, underneath a, a tree in a temple and then an old man was drawn to him, and that was his first student. So it's like totally anti-patriarchal. The boy didn't have a teacher. He was just a devotee. He just kind of did his work on his own. And, you know, he's our first teacher. What does that mean for him to be? You know, we don't have, we're not there with him. We don't need him to put his hands on us. He's demonstrating what a life lived on your own terms can be like, right? And so I think that, you know, that courage to be like an individual, um, you know, that's not Western. When you go back to the very origins of the tradition, it's all about social conformity. Plato and Aristotle, their main worry is, how do we get people to fit in? And so they know their place. And then every philosopher afterwards treats the question of why be moral as, why should I fit into social expectations? It's not part of our, mm -hmm. it's just not part of our tradition, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, you have to really be, and, but yoga is always this kind of rebel thing, right? I'm just going to be devoted to sovereignty. Yeah, I mean, that's the... <laughs> that work myself. You know, so oh, there's just a couple questions I want to ask, and I could take it a couple, multiple different directions, but 
There's no way this is an easy question, but maybe it is. And it may be a really dumb one. But I hear people a lot of times talk about, well, there's a book out. You might have read it, The Trauma of Caste. Anjali Rao at Accessible Yoga. Yeah, yeah, I, I haven't read it, but I've seen, I've seen, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so it, it, it really, um, I'm very interested in the, the author. I'm very interested in the book, and so, so, and, and and she may not even be addressing specifically the question I'm asking you, which is, if this origin story of yoga is about sovereignty and autonomy, and about everybody living in this diversity of experience, expression, opinion, kind of a you do you sort of a thing, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of that. Yeah, yeah you sure. do you. <laughs> How do we account for the development of caste alongside the development of that philosophy? And the reason the question may be dumb is that it may not have developed alongside each other. Yeah, no, this is this is a fair question. I mean, I think the first thing, I'm just writing something, but I'm going to share what I wrote. So, you know, um, caste, well, first of all, if you want to find a philosopher who defends caste, you've got to go to Plato. It's actually hard to find a, in the Republic, he, he defines caste. Their caste is about understanding your capacities and how you can contribute to society. Caste in South Asia was like a sociological concept. It's a concept of what your ancestors kind of pass along to you that will then facilitate economic activity. Some people were outcasts. The reality of caste was that it was way more messy and diverse than the forecast story. That's like, that's a highly idealized story of caste you find in Brahminical literature. Mm-hmm. When the British came, they decided to look to Brahmins who knew about the tradition, but what did they know? They knew about literature, basically. That's all they did. To tell us what what are what are your people like? And so then you have this remarkable confabulation of this idea of Hindu law and four castes being the basis of society. Just sociologically was never actually real. If if you look at the reality of caste, there's not there's not one story of the hierarchy. It's regional. Mm. People have different views. My uh, historiography professor, Narendra Wagle, when I was doing my MA in South Asian studies, pointed out that all the emperors in uh, South Indian empires, there were huge empires, were all Sudras. They're all low. But if you followed the Brahminical story, they would have been at the bottom. But the reality was they were they were at the top of where they were. So I think that there, there's on the one hand, the, like the sociological reality. Then there's the philosophical idea of like, well, there's two things. Should there be a hierarchy or is there a hierarchy? And um, should you stick to your, this caste prescriptive? So I think when you look at enough South Asian literature, caste was descriptive. It's hard to find people. There are some traditions who thought it was prescriptive, but they weren't everybody. Mm And the yoga bhakti tradition is a tradition that rejected that caste should be treated prescriptively. Mm. So, you know, this is like, I understand that within uh, white supremacy, I have some kind of racial identity, right? And so do you. And we can describe what that is without thinking that we ought to, that ought to be the story of our life, right? So we can come to terms with those. And I think, one of the things that gets lost in discussions about caste in South Asia is that in North America and the West, people have this ideological view that we don't have caste, which is like, if your parents aren't educated, it's going to be really hard for you to get an education. If your parents don't have money, you're not going to do well. But so like we, we pass along this generation, intergenerational knowledge and resources all the time, oh, totally. right? But people in the West, and or this is, I think, part of Western colonialization, is this weird idealization of Western culture as this like perfect egalitarian <laughs> when it's responsible for all this oppression, but Western society, people are treated as though we're all equal, but like, I'm not going to be a billionaire. Like, it's just not going to happen. Like, if I want to be a billionaire, right? But if my father was a billionaire, I have a good chance, right? Um so, so I think there's a couple of things going on. I think on the one hand, like when people poo-poo cast in South Asia, they pretend like we don't have it. 
And then I think they also don't draw the distinction between the description and the prescription. So I think we need to be more descriptive about our cast and then anti-prescriptive, like not prescriptive, which is the yoga bhakti view. Like, let's be real about oppression and just do what we can to not support it. Completely. And it's, you know, and, and of course I was asking the question from the point of view of yoga being an emancipatory yeah. practice. And I think and I really appreciate your answer because I guess, you know, just <laughs> speaking for myself, that that's all always what I think. I'm like, I don't, how could we <laughs> judge this philosophy or have necessarily have issues with it important to name it, important to know it, important mm-hmm. to describe it exactly as you are saying. But the United States would not, well, certainly the Southern United States, would not have anything close to the intergenerational wealth that it does if it had not been wealth yeah. built on the back of human beings. Right, that, right, right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's like, if you just stop for a second and think about that, think about just the wealth accrual in the United States from the 17th century on. <laughs> I have a lot of first-generation university students at the university I teach at, and it's harder for them than students who come from parents who went to university, like just simple things like that. It's a lot harder for them. And if it's competitive and it is, right, right, Right. it's going to be harder for them to succeed at this. Completely. Right. So we, we have this weird delusion that we don't, it's not, it's, we don't have cats. We don't talk about it. Doesn't mean we don't have it. Well, yeah, things, I mean, you know, things moved very quickly, you know, in the late 20th century, 19th century, 18th centuries, and things moved very fast in the latter part of like the thousand to 2000 sort of range of history because we technologize things, we informationize yeah. things, we, sure. you know, um, you know, the 0101 alone is this just sort of, it just, uh, God, I'm reading a book right now about just the, the origin, you know, to say it again, like story of the internet where like, um, o is O is incorrect and one is correct or something. And like the entire way we think, I mean, this whole technology that's enabling you yeah. and me to speak is based on right and wrong, <laughs> right, wrong, right, wrong. And Are there really only two options? Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> well, it's, everything has to be reducible to these two exactly, options. Exactly, yeah, yeah, so yeah, you can, exactly. Yeah. So you can see where in human contact and context, like you and I are even having in this conversation, yeah. of course, you know, we're, we're explicitly attempting to sort of um, touch the contours of truth. But it, it, it strikes me in this moment that, of course, these kinds of conversations are increasing and becoming more and more because yeah. there's a tyranny of the right, wrong, a tyranny of the 0101, I feel, it seems to me. Well, it, I was just... I just reading reading and writing about the polarization one way to think about polarization well this is what you've described is with your two options right that the easiest way to generate polarization is just to you interpret so you treat your beliefs as the as the kind of the explanation then everything else is yeah yeah incorrect right when we are willing to do the kind of work i teach we we understand there are options lots of them and going back to that conversation you were having a few well the the gift of real philosophy is you can you can be agnostic. There's no expectation for you to have a horse in the race team. Yeah. Like you don't have yeah. to take sides. And that's what the gift of yoga too is. Like when when I can understand the options, I take back my freedom yeah. to choose, right? Uh, when I just saddled with one view, I have no options. Yeah. It's just yeah, this. and I'm sure that I was having um, like I was so young and you know, as I say openly on this podcast, I came from tremendous interfamilial trauma, though looking at me, you can see that I would walk through the world without having a lot of sociological trauma um, and, and, and ethnic or race-based trauma. But I can say that as a young girl, even before this moment that I'll describe in a second, like, I'm not sure what happened, but as soon as I understood in my high school life that somebody was treating me like I was less than, like as a, as a girl, I, I just, I actually sliced them out of my consciousness. I was just like, forget it. Like I can't, I cannot acknowledge you as real in my (laughs) life because 
because you're telling me I'm le- like what it just it, cognitively it didn't make sense because I was like I know who I am and I know who these other girls are so why would you do mm-hmm. that it seems like a waste of energy and time anyway for you and for yeah. me so goodbye you, right. you do you but I don't want them to do that you know in a way it's it's yeah well they're not doing them they're doing us they're doing yeah, that's true right so that's that's, that's true. Uh, you know they're not really living their life they've in, they've internalized the politics of their environment and then they're acting like a, a cell or an agent of that that's um perversely really beautiful i appreciate you saying that a lot actually because i've lo- i've long wondered how, how i mean i slice them out of my consciousness but i'm still talking about them today but only as sort of a an example, an example of how I, yeah, example exactly. Like built my, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but I guess my point about like that moment in the sort of philosophy conversation in college, I was, there's no question I was having, you know, performative, um, you know, sort of right. stress to have an answer to, to be right or to yeah. be wrong. And then to figure out if I'm wrong, how to become right, which, uh, is why I've always right. been drawn to yoga because as I was talking about with, Oh, I can't remember. It may have been Shannon Crow, who, of course, adores you like I do. Um, We were talking about how we've never had any internal or other experience than yoga practice that has made us feel so whole and so true and so safe. And so we we were talking about the chaos in our kind of external lives and how, at least I... Certainly, I, th- there's disagreement inside me. There's confusion. There's like, oh, I thought this was true, but this isn't true. But I don't ever feel chaos. I don't ever feel like things are falling apart at the seams when I go in. I feel like, ah, oh, I've like arrived, you know? And so mm-hmm. what do you think about the fact that the majority of Western yoga practitioners are women or women female identifying. What do you think, what's in that? Why is that, do you think? Oh, interesting. You know, I haven't ever really given a, I feel like that has more to do with the gender politics of what we're allowed to do. So I think it's less that this is for women and more that men aren't really supposed to be doing Mm. this kind of thing. Um, that's the way it's always seemed to me as a man, right? That, that like, if I was to do this, I would be, um, I would be exploring, um, aspects of my life that I'm supposed to have already figured out or not have or something like that, right? Um, and somehow that this was a space or a freedom that women were allowed. I, I think it's more, more that, it's all nonsense, but still, I mean, that's the kind of the, the the vibe I get because, you know, when you talk to men who start to do yoga, they often there's some story about how they didn't feel like it was really for them. And that I find is is informative because you don't hear that women saying, "I wasn't sure." Like, they were like, "I'm going to do yoga," usually, right? So I think it's I think it's more about that. I think um, that's fascinating. Yeah. I, I love that. that. Thank you for that answer. And, you know, to kind of lay on the plane and respect your time, I, I'd i love for you to tell us a little bit about your translation of the Yoga Sutras. I, it was certainly one of the most interesting aspects of the research that we did. Um, I really want to find, here it is, yes. Um, when we were putting, you know, together the questions, um, I wanted to wonder, like, well, first of all, I'm interested in translation studies because that kind of gets back to my question way back from the, you know, like 45 minutes ago and how your translation has changed the literature of Indian philosophy. And of course, like embedded in that is when you read these quote translations of the sutras, you noticed that it was just people... They were sheer nonsense. So the so the thing about me, so there was two things about me. I was a student in philosophy. I was already, I didn't know this. I was already, well, I knew that I'd already decided to engage in each component. I didn't know what that was really. Like, it's funny, you make a decision and there are real consequences. And I didn't understand what those real, but that was a fortuitous decision I made when I was about 19. When I came to philosophy and studying philosophy, I already knew that, the, the 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 story we had in South Asian studies and indulged by people created by people lacking professional training. They were linguists 
And they did the weirdest things. They did whatever would get you flunked out in philosophy. They did like on a house on house on fire. So they so if you were in a philosophy class, like an undergraduate philosophy class, and you had to read Kant, and then you just started talking about how you feel about what he's saying or what this means to you, people go like, "We're not here to talk. We're here to talk about Kant." But in in this academic realm, studying stuff, that's what everybody did. So I already knew that that's kind of what they already did. Second of all, I already knew quite a bit about the history of South Asian philosophy. So philosophy is big picture. It's not, you, it's about taking a step back. And the first thing I noticed is that, that the views that people were articulating in their translations sounded a lot like what they were already committed to in life. <laughs> so, so there was that. Then there was also, um, I dug up Vyasa's commentary. So Vyasa is the first commentator on the and. If you know, if you can read philosophy, you can tell it's heavily influenced by Sankhya that you find in Sankhya Karka. The Yoga Sutra is very different in what it talks about. So Sankhya Karka mm-hmm. denies agency. Mm-hmm. Yoga is all mm-hmm. about doing stuff. <laughs> the whole thing is about doing stuff. So I could kind of tell what was going on. And now looking back, I have language for this. They were interpreting. They were using their beliefs. And a sutra text is a hard text to read anyways, because it's like a zip file. So it's about compression. And every word, especially in the Yoga Sutra, is meant because it has lots of meanings. So, but what people usually do is they just choose the one they like, which for me is just like, on what basis are, like, I'm not I'm not interested in you. I want to know what's in the Yoga Sutra. So there's this real narcissism where people make themselves the topic. So, I was my I was working on my PhD on translation. It was in philosophy, but I was looking at philosophy and language and, and the challenge of translating world philosophy. It dipped in heavily into translation studies, which is this interdiscipline on translation and linguistic anthropology. So I already had like some I was working on like a story of how you do this properly. But um, so but here's what I did. Um, I first knew that this is, I had to make a decision, I had to make a choice to read this as a text of philosophy, because I knew that that choice would impact how I organized mm-hmm. the various meanings. And, and there's nothing wrong in deciding to read it as comedy, and then you'd get something else. But as long mm-hmm. as you're transparent about that choice, there are implications. So that was part of the theory I was developing. So I knew it was a text of philosophy, so then that meant I, I needed to understand it in terms of a disagreement, not how I saw the world. So then I was reading it in terms of, well, what are the implications of this text for wider conversations and disagreements going on in the tradition? So you, it's a big picture. Then I sat down with the Moni Moni uh, Sanskrit, uh, William Sanskrit English Dictionary, and I looked at every word, and I found like the each word would have like a huge list of meanings and I would narrow mm. it down to the top five. And then each sutra, my goal in translating the English is that I'd have to choose an English that managed to get all of that across. So I wasn't filtering. And the one thing I noticed that nobody else seems to notice is that one of the meanings of Riti and Yoga's Chitta Vritti Naroda is ethical behavior. No, everybody else chucks that out. They think <laughs> it's there at the start, right? And then it ends on the Dharma Mega Samadhi, right? So it's just, so I just kind of applied like my understanding of South Asia and like the translation studies stuff I was working on. And um, and I didn't really understand everything, but I didn't need to. I just needed to reproduce the sutra in English that captured all those things. And then what happened for me, every year I went back, I just started finding deeper and deeper levels. And the commentary, I think, is like 70% right. I The translation I still like because I did it rigorously. So for me, it was a learning experience. I was learning, first of all, what it was to translate, but I was learning from Patanjali because as soon as I started doing this, he was communicating to me the exact challenge I set myself, which is, how do I make sense of things? And he's like, well, you, there are two options. You start up. You can either make everything about you or you take a responsible approach where you organize things and that organizational exercise respects you as an individual, your autonomy. And then years, and then I, eventually I was like, oh, this is what he's talking about. I call it explication. You just render explicit 
the implications of various options, and that allows you to choose, right? And um, the opposite is you just buy whatever <laughs> is familiar, and then you're stuck. Uh, anyways, it was just this wild experience of like, you know, and the, also just deconstructing the hubris. Oh, that's of the what Western I keep world, thinking. Yeah. Where they think they kind of totally. It that's what I keep thinking. <laughs> I would love to ask you about 700 other questions, but I think we need to leave it at this, not only respecting your time, but also in the show notes listing, at least in order that we think people could read. I mean, I just, you know, the majority of people listening to this are deeply yoga interested, if not yoga teachers. And um, I think we all would benefit from reading your translation of the Yoga Sutras, at least, because everybody on this call, by virtue of their interest in the kinds of conversations I'm having, have read the sutras at least, like, I don't know how, I mean, and you don't really read, you know, the sutras. Yeah, you know, yeah, you yeah. Sort of like take in exactly, as you said, one sutra and you then just walk into back. the, <laughs> oh my <laughs> God, constantly. Back, so yeah. I guess my point is the majority of people listening have got the sutras very close by. Yeah. Whatever I, translation, yeah. they're picking it up, they're looking at it. As my teacher years ago said, it's um, bathroom reading. <laughs> he, just, <laughs> he said, it's always there because I, I always will have the time to sort of dig it in, not to be scatological, but um, I really, thank you. It's really been an honor talking to you. It's been such a, such an education and so interesting. And I am, I can't wait to follow your work and, and to find out the other stuff you publish coming up and stuff that's coming. I'm really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was so much fun to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It was produced by Alyssa Yaroshevsky and me and features original music from my former band, Governess. We're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, on weekswell.com and have a newsletter. And we're also now most recently on Substack, exploring in as many media as we can the conversation, practice, and community of being your best self. If you have any ideas on the week's well about guests, about feedback on the show, anything you'd like to know or talk about or dialogue about, hit us up at hello at weekswell.com. We love the feedback. We love the conversation. We hope to see you next time for the next episode of the week's well next week. Bye.